Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Rachel. Hello. John. Hello. And Becca. Hi. We're going to be talking today about um, work in the um, arts field, I guess, is the broad topic we've uh, lumped our guests under here. Um, John and Rebecca have joined us because uh, they perform in various functions. Uh, John, you are a comedian and Rebecca, you are an actress, among other things. I want to just start off the show by letting the two of you sort of uh, inform our listeners what, before COVID at least, what were your roles like? What what did you do? Rebecca, if you want to start. Sure. You know, as many artists, performers this day and age, I was a gig worker. um, And so I had three or four side jobs, depending on uh, the time, Uh, you know, like two main ones and one and two like here and there ones. Um, and then every once in a while, you know, I, or when I could, I'd be auditioning a lot and I'd get acting gigs. Um, I had just filmed my first, uh, web series episode, um, right before things started shutting down. And it was like, there was this feeling of momentum going on. And I had just finished a really great five day workshop with a really wonderful acting coach. That's, you know, he's, he's worked with like lots of, lots of acting movie stars and he's a wonderful human. Um, so I was doing that and I was looking into starting voice lessons. So that was where I was about February to the beginning of March of last year, as well as bartending, catering and dog sitting. John. I, let me see. I was doing usually a few shows a week, uh, and also teaching improv. Um, so I have the opportunity to work with um, some really great theaters in Milwaukee, um, some nice improv theaters, and uh, also some nice crews of folks. Um, and so we had, you know, a couple monthly gigs. We had, I had a standing Saturday night show. Um, I also hosted trivia at a bar on Sundays. Um, and then on top of that, I had the, the nine to five day job doing it at a, at a, a nonprofit in Milwaukee here. So yeah, busy, busy days and a, a lot of time going in all sorts of directions, kind of like Becca was talking about. No dogs though, unfortunately. No, oh, you got to add the dogs in. <laughs> <laughs> so John, that's like four jobs as well, right? Yeah. I mean, generally I would, I would say that teaching the workshops and performing, I categorize, categorize as different uh, yeah. jobs. So, so yeah, usually, usually. And trivia. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So four jobs. Yep. It it just jumped out to me that both of you mentioned having like another job to actually pay the bills. Even before the pandemic hit, these are, you know, these are things that you're passionate about, but they weren't necessarily um, paying gigs in the way that you might want them to be. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, For me, I mean, there were a couple that um, are, they pay a little. Uh, <laughs> but nothing that could, you know, su- su- support or sustain me. And I think that's 
something that I think people, a lot of people don't realize that 90 something percent of actors and performers and artists make, you know, under $30,000 a year. So poverty wages. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And a couple of the shows that, uh, that I would be doing monthly normally, I get paid in, you know, like two drink tickets for the show. That was the uh, payment? Yeah. Um, (laughs) Get two drink tickets when you show up. And it was, uh, and then I would usually go through those during the show and then end up paying to keep drinking (laughs) until it was my time to do the show. So it's usually out of pocket on the shows. Um, And I I do feel like I want to point out that that's not, uh, that that's just a symptom of it being kind of like a, like a punk rock little show of like, you know, we're just going to take over this, this part of a bar, uh, not charge anything for the show, um, and just do a, do a thing in that way. So, so not quite, not quite a situation where they'd even have the capacity to, um, you know, pay in any way other than drink tickets. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that was the reality of, of that. And then the other, another show is dependent on, you know, how many people are coming to the show? How much money do we bring in? And then how does that get disseminated amongst the performers? No, in a lot of cases, performing artists and artists in general are kind of, um, like the arts are seen as a luxury and they're treated. So arts workers aren't treated with, you know, most workers in general don't get nearly enough respect, I would say, or, or fair treatment. Um, but artists, especially because the arts are kind of seen as a luxury, like the passion that artists generally have is kind of assumed to be payment enough, which is far beyond unfair. But like, it seems like John, just from your story that you were basically are paying money to do this. Like it, the drink yeah. tickets thing, like you're, you're out money when you go every time. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that is, that is definitely the case. I know that, you know, from the, from the perspective of teaching improv as well, you know, in terms of how to, how to sell that in a place where we're able to collect money to do that, you end up selling it on professional skills and how, you know, learning um, to do improvised comedy is going to benefit your professional um, acumen. And so we would get a lot of, um, you know, like professors and, uh, business people who are looking to be more confident in front of crowds and stuff, but it was never like, you know, the, the way that those kinds of workshops are sold is never something of like, Hey, take this workshop because it's fun. You know, that, that, that was always my first selling point, but realistically in terms of, um, in terms of selling it, it, it has to be, um, from the more, the more, I guess, like business sector side of things, uh, which yeah, kind of speaks to that same thing that you're talking about in terms of the arts being more of a luxury. Right. And unless they have a practical value for business people to be better at presentations in front of a boardroom, they're not, uh, seen as practical. Sure. And not that that isn't important, you know, like not that, not that it wasn't great to, to know that, you know, a professor was going to have an easier time when a student was heckling them. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's an interesting headspace in terms of how to how to sell that. Well, I'm almost struck by like our broader education system is so geared towards getting people into jobs. It, it's not just education for education's sake, and maybe it never was, but there's 
this intense pressure on, you know, getting a degree or taking a class because it will help you down the line in a workplace. It will shape your job skills for the future. And it's just interesting to see that in sort of miniature in, in your field there. Absolutely. I think that's an astute observation. Now, setting the minimal pay aside, I, I'm curious what sort of struggles you had with your jobs, uh, such as they were, like, whether that be making time for them, because, again, you had other jobs to um, pay the bills. Um, even before the pandemic, what were the struggles you were facing? Um, Becca, if you want to start. Well, yeah, the the most obvious one would definitely be the time for for me living in in Brooklyn in New York, you know, the cost of living is pretty high. So, you know, if you want to not have to live in a shoebox and like have no privacy, you really you have to hustle. And that's also it's interesting uh, on an artistic level, a lot of it is also being as as an actor, you're really supposed to stay open and vulnerable. Um, and be able to be this open channel and um, the having to hustle and kind of be tough and, you know, be your own boss, that that's a hard thing to unwind from. And so you need time to be able to get into the physical and headspace of somebody who can be open to everything. So both like the time issue and just the emotional um, aspects of, of dealing with living in this city um, and then, and then trying to perform while you're juggling so many things, uh, are very strong. And then, and then I say another thing that I still have a hard time with, and I always have is that because there aren't enough jobs for the amount of actors there are out there, there's a lot of classes and to stay fresh and to stay, you know, active, um, and keep your, your tool sharpened you know, it's, they, it's good to be in class. Some people can do it on their own, but like for a lot of us, it's good to have the structure and work with different teachers to really, to really try to expand our skills, but that's very costly and, and everything they've monetized everything, you know, now you have to go to casting director workshops. There's a, it's a pay to play game. They call it basically. So I had a lot of internal push and pull over not wanting to have to pay to do something that AI absolutely love. And I should be able to get in front of somebody without having to spend money, but also realizing that that's kind of what you have to do. And then that basically keeps you stuck with all those other jobs in order to afford the one that you want to be doing most. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Uh, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Not fun. But, and also one thing a lot of actors don't tell you, it's only starting to be talked about more is that they have coaches. So you often pay a coach for an audition, for a role that works with you to um, just come up with better ideas and really get the best performance. But that is basically two creative people right there um, mm -hmm. working on that. And you, you know, that's more money out of your pocket as well. And then if you want an agent, that's a third person. Right. Like and a manager. Find, yeah. Jeez. Or a commercial agent or a voiceover <laughs> so agent. Yeah. You can pay and pay and pay yep. for the opportunities. And if you can't pay, those opportunities are practically impossible to find, it sounds like. Yeah. The whole just like being found like isn't, isn't much of a thing anymore or just being in like smaller, you know, productions and being discovered is not, we're not really in that day 
that day has passed. And now that the internet, you know, self-tapes have become much more, even before the pandemic, self-tapes were very common for the auditioning. And uh, Now, what's a self-tape, just for listeners who might not be familiar, and Uh, myself? Yeah, a self-tape is when you put your audition on tape. Uh, you can use your iPhone, you can use your phone if it has a good recording. Um, oftentimes you have to, if it's not just a monologue, you have to have a reader as well. So it's finding someone who will, um, who will do the scene with you. And then nowadays there's tools like you should have a good background. You should have lights. You need to have the right sound. So there's a lot of investment that goes into making a quality self tape as well. And then there are businesses, people have started businesses on doing self tapes for you. Oh, geez. And probably makeup too, right? Yeah. I mean, the makeup isn't as, isn't as necessary for like the first, you know, like the initial, but if you get farther down the line, it's a good idea. And, yeah. and I also can't be mad at people who are like, oh, I can do a self tape business because they're all actors as well who are trying right? to make a living. And so they make it within their field, but in a different capacity. Yeah. Everybody's hustling as best they can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, tutoring and uh, seminars all the way down, isn't it? Yes, it sure is. I'm really struck by sort of the parallels um, because my field uh, coming out of college was journalism. And that is a field where it's more or less expected, especially nowadays, that you're going to have an unpaid internship before you get out of college if you want to have something on your resume so that you can get that first job. There's these huge barriers to entry, both in terms of time and finances in um, these industries where there are more, like you said, uh, more people who want in than there are jobs available. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it's almost like, you know, you guys should be grateful for the opportunity for the unpaid opportunity to get yourselves out there, any, any opportunity. Um, that's sort of, I don't know, the sentiment that seems to be behind it, like having, you know, unpaid internships or unpaid work of any sort. It's like, well, you know, you're lucky to get that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you see that even in some big companies, uh, like, Uh, that aren't in the arts at all, like you hear about that or unpaid or very minimum wage internships where they just have to, like their life is owned by by their bosses, but they don't get to reap any of the benefits except for having it on their resume and maybe making connections. Um, And it's interesting that acting schools, a lot of the smaller acting schools to like to, if, if you were chosen or you would like to teach it, a lot of it is following your teacher for two years unpaid. I mean, that's how it's been done forever. And people are only starting to kind of go, you know, this should, this should be something that's paid. Um, but that's also tricky because the studios are trying to make a living and they're trying to pay these rents. Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of the reason things are so expensive here at least is because of the brick and mortar aspect and the astronomical rents. Um, so you realize that everyone, even the smaller, even even the person who's taking advantage, they're also, you know, have have a bottom line and have something they're answering to. So, and that's connected to real estate prices and all that, all that stuff. Yeah. So, oof. 
Rachel, this is something you had touched on a bit earlier, which is that you're almost expected that the joy of having a job like this will uh, substitute for any sort of pay you might expect. For a living wage. Yeah. Fair treatment. And and something I'm curious about from the both of our guests here is you know, what are the joys of your job? What what keeps you coming back to something like this? Uh, it's not something that we talk about a lot on this show, but you know what are the things that you really do love and enjoy about these this work? I was telling someone a story recently about maybe the best I've ever felt in my life just for one split moment, and it was making a joke on stage that caused an entire audience to laugh and then turn their laughs collectively into a groan. And the the satisfaction I got out of making a joke that was dumb enough uh, that it first, (laughs) first got that laugh, but then made everyone groan and kind of turn on me. And that feeling inside of just like, Oh, I'm alive right now. Um, There's definitely a piece of it that is like that. I remember hearing someone talk about Robin Williams and say that, I think the phrase was that he needed that extra hug that only an audience could give him. Um, So I think there's definitely a piece of it that's, that's like that. Um, There's, there's a lot of self validation from creating, you know, in my, in my line of of doing improvised comedy, there's a, a lot of, how I see myself coming from my capacity to, to create on the fly um, using suggestions from an audience with people to build something together um, to collaborate in that capacity. Again, without any real plan um, just based on chemistry and listening. That's a, that's a really big part of it. And also, you know, the, the feeling of, of sharing your brain in a very, like Becca was saying, in a very like vulnerable way, right? Like really putting yourself out there. And it, you know, that comes with, comes with some pretty devastating moments sometimes, but mostly the, the reaction is really feeling seen in a way that doesn't always happen in other uh, professional capacities or even social capacities. Could probably be pretty intimate sometimes. 100%. Like yeah. invigorating and connected. Yeah, for I mean, for me, after after a show is done, I always feel like like a, a it's a different kind of tired. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a, a satisfied feeling. Presuming, <laughs> presuming I didn't screw anything up too badly. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like it's a satisfied feeling, but of just like like I, I gave something beyond you know what what would otherwise be shared. Something um, unique. And special in that moment that can't be replicated ever again. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. yeah. How about you, Beck? Um. Wow. Well, it's, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I was, that was a great answer, but it's changed a bit for me over the years. But the the self expression, even if you're expressing yourself through another character, um, getting to bring your voice to that and bring a character to life and, 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 and also really exploring a different part of yourself in order to really do justice to this, this character is, is just a really wonderful and, and challenging process. And then also, 
yeah, the live performing on stage with an audience, the in, the exchange of energy is just something that's so special and so hard to, you know, it's it's adrenaline. It's this it's this beautiful thing and and if you, you know, I always feel like if I do a good job, then the audience will have hopefully like thought differently, questioned something they hadn't questioned before. You know, I I really love the fact that more and more art and theater, well, it has always been, you know, brings issues to light that people are not exposed to. Um, And just being a part of that and maybe helping someone feel seen by by speaking something that's their truth, their truth, I, I think is just so beautiful and so uh, overwhelming to to be a part of. Then you have these great fun moments with like I've done children's theater where like little kids just say the silliest things to you, and it's just it's just seeing how it affects different people. And yeah, there's just this I have an energy and an exhaustion that comes from it. I totally agree that isn't there for the filming, you know, it's not, I was really worried I wasn't going to like film and TV, but I, there's a, there's a, uh, a specificity and a skill to understanding what you need to do to convey the same things, but on a much smaller scale. That's really exciting to want to like the perfectionist in me and who wants to discover and get like, I just really want to get it right. And I have how you, uh, I'm going off in a tangent, but um, no, it just, it just brings a lot of joy. There's so much discovery and exploration within it as well that, you know, when I was younger and acting was there, but, but now I have such a different appreciation for, for, for what like really deep actors go through, like the hours it actually takes to, to really become a character. Yeah. It can be immersive. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. And you talking, you both talking about the sort of like emotional labor of it and the vulnerability of the performing arts that it strikes me that, and and maybe this is a, a segue, that, you know, this pandemic we've been going through has caused us all to have a collective grief and an emotional labor that is like unprecedented certainly in our lifetimes, maybe ever. And I've been thinking about the importance of the arts, like always for helping us as a society to cope with crises and to process emotions collectively. And to, like what you were saying, Becca, to help people see things from a different perspective, like especially if it's through a story or through a character, people can come to conclusions that they wouldn't come to if they were being preached at or being told or, or learning in any other way, like it helps people to process things that are normally difficult to process otherwise. And so I've been thinking about the impact of COVID on the performing arts when it's almost like we need the performing arts more than ever to process everything we've been through in the past year. 
I know that there have been some adaptations that have allowed the work to continue in, in some respects. So first and foremost, like what's still happening for both of you? And then we can talk about, you know, is it working? What would work better? I haven't performed in, in a little bit. At this point, I'm uh, uh, mostly just sharing on behalf of my, my friends that are performing. It's a weird thing. Yeah, I did some virtual shows at the beginning of uh, our, our pandemic lockdown. And it, it led to some pretty cool collaborative opportunities. You know, it led to getting to perform with people across the country. It led to performing with people uh, across the Atlantic Ocean. Um, yeah, so some some cool uh, opportunities in that capacity. But for me, as it went on, it, it, it was hard to maintain my level of excitement for it um, because as Becca was mentioning, the, the level of energy that we get from a live audience mm-hmm. um, is, is such a big part of the performance. And especially in, in improvised situation you want to you want to listen to what the audience is reacting to and you want to you want to point your performance in that direction you want to you want to give people what they want and you know if you figure out early on that people like maybe punnier humor or more slapsticky stuff you you want to deliver a performance that goes in that way and you just don't get that same kind of feedback when you're watching you know the zoom chat of like ha 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 you know (laughs) Is that all that there was, was the Zoom chat function? We had, we did a little experimenting in one show of having a couple (laughs) designated laughers, um, (laughs) which friends of ours were, their mics were on and we could hear them chuckle. Okay. But it's, yeah, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't ring the same, you know, and even the, the piece of it of. The from the performing side of, of having that connection with another performer just doesn't land the same way over screens. You know, yeah. the timing of it just can't be as precise. Um, there's not, there's not as much room for silence, which mm. is a big part of the way that I like to perform. I like those moments where we're expecting a big payoff and I, I like making people wait for it, but mm you know, in a virtual platform, that pause turns into everyone panicking and thinking that your connection is frozen. So they have to then step in and, and cover for you. You know, like there's, yeah. there's just a different, because of the ways that we're adjusting, we end up losing some of the, the humanity of the performance in a way that, you know, we're losing pieces of it that felt like the most important pieces for me. Um, and it's also, it's also weird to, you know, finish a show and, traditionally you know go to the bar with the other performers and talk about how the show was and things that we feel good about and things that were were dumb and we shouldn't do again but we're definitely going to do again <laughs> um, and in this circumstance it's like the show's over and like okay and then you close a laptop and then you're just alone so yeah. it's a it's a very different it's a very different feeling all around and it just didn't it hasn't had the same feeling for me um, performing virtually as performing in person. How about you, Beck? Yeah, I can, I can very much relate to the, the afterwards as well. Um, because I, I did a couple, I have three maybe uh, virtual theater, theatrical performances. 
Um, and they all had different challenges and different moments. And it, it was fun. It was interesting to see how we were going to figure it out. But it did. And one, I think I enjoyed a little bit more than the others because it was um, solo work. It was monologues. So they didn't have as many of the technical challenges that you had to worry about and, you know, didn't have to worry about like missing that connection with the other person because you already are dealing with that anyways. So that I, I definitely enjoyed. I, I liked to see how much, you know, actors, singers, performers, artists of all kind found ways to perform virtually, e- even though it's not the same. And, you know, yeah, it, it worked okay. I, I've i also been lucky enough to recently do a couple small gigs in person, but they were not, they weren't theater. Um, they were, you know, commercials or whatnot. So that was, it was nice to see that some work is starting to get done again. How were the commercial shoots? Like, did people wear masks? Were people staying socially distant? Yeah, was I was really theater? impressed with, you know, of course they said, uh, on all the information that they were going to be following all the safety protocols. These are all non-union shoots, by the way, because I'm still non-union. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were very cautious, very safe. Um, the only thing was at one point in one of the shoots, there were a couple people, a couple actors. There were four actors and we, everybody was spread out except for like two of the actors just like hung out at the table together without masks. And they, and you know, that, that was their choice and everyone else just kept their distance. Um, but besides that, everything was, was, I felt just as safe as I do, if not safer working in a restaurant, um, with mm. people eating and drinking with their masks down. Yeah. So that often was good. Imbibing alcohol and being, yeah. Uh, Becca, you'd mentioned earlier that there's this shortage of jobs in the industry, even before the pandemic. Did you notice like that squeeze getting even tighter during the pandemic? Oh, yeah. Were there fewer opportunities? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't know. For for quite a long time, there weren't any paid gigs going on. It was, you know, people just doing stuff online just to, or, or there were online readings probably that paid a little bit. But I think also because theater companies and such, you know, I have a friend who just did a reading for this really small theater company in the Lower East Side here in New York. And they, he told them to, you know, don't worry about the fee. You know, it was like $150. And he's like, they that's huge to them. You know, that's huge to this little theater company. And he's able to teach right now. So he said, you know what, you guys keep that. But yeah, no, way less jobs. And I'd see some that were like COVID depending, you know, early on. And you're like, hmm, I wonder if this is going to happen. So I'd say that it's definitely been much more limited. I think I'm at this moment, kind of lucky that I am non-union because mm. there's a little bit more not there's actually a lot more non-union work happening at the moment. Do you think that's just the the cost? You know, I think it has to do with this cost and the scale, you know, that a lot of the higher paying union things tend to cover. Um, the, uh, the more of the union things that I am seeing happen, there's a few TV, you know, there's a few television shows that are are working or have been working on and off. Mm -hmm. And then there's some like small, um, I can't, I can't think of the exact term for it, but like, it's the small SAG projects, like the low budget projects 
that mm-hmm. are are still happening a little bit, but they can also hire non-union actors. So, just to um, give a concrete sense of scale here, I, I came across a headline in the Wrap just this past week: uh, film and video production lost nearly ninety-two thousand jobs during the pandemic, according to a recent study. So that sort of puts in perspective, you know, what you're talking about. That's a lot. Yeah. Um and. The article mentions that most of those are in California, but I'm sure New York is probably second on that list, you know? Absolutely. And we don't think about, you know, oftentimes you don't think about the amount of people it takes to mount a production, Um, you know, the lighting, the gaffers, the catering, like there's so many different levels um, of people who work to make it happen that now are out of that job um, in both theater and in film. And it's really, you know, it's really heartbreaking. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned one of your, is it your main job or just one of many side jobs that you're a bartender? Uh, that's, it's, it's been my main job and, and continues to be my main job. Yes. Yes. And I'm very grateful I'm just to have curious <laughs> how, how that has also been impacted during this, you know, or have you had to take on more work to supplant what you've lost there or have you been mostly steady? Um, Well, luckily, so obviously early on, we were all let go. Uh, They did, the place I work for was able to keep a few people on for takeout. And then, you know, we slowly all came back and, you know, very blessed that, you know, New York State, there are a lot of problems, but they did decide, I don't know if it was this way in the whole country that you could, you could still collect some unemployment, even because you're not back to your full-time work. Like you're working one day a week instead of four or five. So you're underemployed. Yeah. You're very underemployed. And as long as you are, you know, didn't go above a certain amount, you could still collect unemployment. So, you know, that was really helpful. And once that ran out and that stopped, then it became more of a challenge. Uh, And, you know, my catering job was gone for a while. It won't be back until, you know, we can have big events. And, you know, because of just the hard space that a lot of people are in right now, um, a management position opened up because, you know, one of our managers, uh, parents unexpectedly passed away. And Mm. so I started helping, I used to manage and I had retired from it so I could focus on acting, but I picked that back up mostly to help, um, Mm -hmm. the business and my co-manager. And also because it would help me out a little bit more monetarily, and it's not a lot of money, but it has definitely helped um, during these like winter months, especially. But it does take a, a higher level of emotional and mental uh, labor that is then challenging for me to to fit alongside acting. Yeah, um, but I'm very lucky. I work for. Some it's a small business, um, but they they're a cup married couple, and they care so much about the people who work for them, and you know they we have undocumented workers, and they may, wanted to make sure that they they tried to like make it so they could at least pay their salaries, you know, even if they weren't working the full time, just because they knew like they can't collect unemployment and. Um, you know, they were ready to like give up their health insurance at one point. And we, they, you know, they were like, no, please don't do that. Like they have two kids and it's like, oh, that's too much, you know, like, but yeah. I just know how lucky I am and the people I work with are to have 
owners who are going to do what they can to make sure everyone, you know, everyone could eat for free anytime and still can if they need to come in and get a meal. So I feel very lucky in that regard. That is rare because there are so many people in very similar situations. You and I talked about briefly when we were doing some research for this episode about like whether unionized performance artists have have fared better in the pandemic. Um, But yeah, in the little bit of research that I did, it sounds like not so much. Um, The first article that I found was about how um, both SAG-AFTRA and I think, what is it, Artists' Equity? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Both had cut benefits, um, especially health insurance. Um, And it seems like SAG-AFTRA is in big trouble. They... They slashed health insurance for some of the oldest um, members of the union, and they are facing huge lawsuits. Um, so, so, you know, like I understand that, you know, for both of you, having those other jobs is probably what allows you to get health care, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that I mean, it's my <laughs> I don't I don't think I could put on LinkedIn that my salary requirement is, you know, two drink minimum. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the the professional minded side of it and it, it definitely is is about that is how I support my life and the you know my performing side is more how I support my, my fun. Mm-hmm. It's it, I'm sorry? How you support your soul. No, I'm, I'm just, I'm sorry that it supports my soul. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely that. And it's something I've had the discussions, you know, w- well before the last year with, with folks um, who are asking, like, would you want to do the performance stuff full time? And I, I'm not sure that I would based on th- there's a, a level of it for me of the, because it's not something that's paying my bills, I can I can have more fun with it. And if something goes badly, it's not like oh, this is going to f- affect my future financial capacity, right? Um, but at the same time, it sure would be sure would be nice in that in that way. Yeah, that actually I had like been thinking. That's a pretty good segue because I'd been thinking about you know the the whole seeing arts as a luxury sort of the idea that artists are passionate about their craft and what they do and that that passion should be payment enough and you know that necessitates having other jobs in order to access healthcare and other services in our current context you know i wanted to ask both of you like what would be your ideal circumstance like post pandemic as a thriving and well supported performance artist but my guess is that without sweeping reforms that provide you with healthcare and provide you, you know, maybe like universal basic income or something like that, where you don't have to worry and have that anxiety all the time that the bottom's going to fall out. Like it needs to be in conjunction with other things to prop us all up. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I mean, I think that all comes back to the fact that in, in this country, you know, our healthcare is tied to our work right. rather than a model where, you know, healthcare is a right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that alone begs the question of like, is there a, a greater, I guess, revolution in thinking that would need to happen before that's even a question I know how to answer. 
Absolutely. I feel the same way. I don't know so many things would have to change and be different um, that I'm not sure how to answer that either. (laughs) I could answer it in like, in this current climate, what would the ideal thing be? But there's so many artists would need to be supported in a way that I don't know if they've ever been fully in this country. I feel like there was a, you know, that like the new deal started to touch on that, but it's nothing like it is in, in certain, in, you know, and and I'm not very educated, fully educated on this, but I do know that, you know, like the UK, for instance, supports their artists a lot more and have, and jumped on trying to figure out how to help theater there well before people started even thinking about it here. But I think one of the biggest things is, is the health insurance and and the fact that our government lets people hit bottom and stay there. So that is a giant fear for probably almost everybody, um, mm-hmm. as, but especially especially artists. And now seeing how little artists have been supported uh, at this time really, really gives you pause, um, as to, you know, thinking about what, what do I need to have in place, uh, so that I can survive if this happens again or when this happens again. You talk about that lack of a safety net and you're right that it's, it's a huge risk to go into a field like this and, you know, try to make a career out of it. It's, it's imposing. And I, I think that risk turns a lot of people away because of the barriers to entry, because of the not sure of what you do if you fail. You know, people seek out safer alternatives, things that can be more reliable. And, you know, earlier, uh, especially John, you talked about sort of the fulfillment you take out of this sort of work, um, the the joy it brings you. And, you know, there's a world in which everybody is feeling something like that, some sort of fulfillment in their workplace, you know, doing what they do, doing what they love. But currently, so often it's the case that if you're getting that joy, it's not paired with any sort of stability or job security or, you know, the knowledge that you can make a living doing this. It's like Rachel's been saying, a luxury. Yeah, I know. um, I know a couple people that are um, they're able to support themselves through performance, through some of those improv avenues. But it's also, uh, you know, a, again, to, to go back to those ideas about like, then does that become a question for them of being able to afford healthcare or what is their standard of living? What kind of concessions do they need to make in their life to be able to uh, live in that way? And, you know, that's the choice that they make uh, versus the choice that I make of, you know, having my, my full-time job. And I'm, I'm also lucky. I, I should say that I, I get fulfillment out of my full-time job as well, because I'm working for a, an organization that's making a difference in the community. Um, so, so that's a, a big deal for me. Um, but it is, a, it's a different, it's a different thing, um, from the performing side. And, uh, and yeah, there is, there's a little bit of that, um, I guess just the expectation even going in, like it's so ingrained in our cultural awareness that, that there's not enough room for everyone to be a a superstar, that there's the implication that you should just be, be grateful for the stage time or be grateful for, 
you know, someone giving you a high five after a show or something like that. So, so there's a weird way in which I knew that that was the case before I even got into it, before I even got to a place where I was going to ask the question of, is this something I'd want to pursue professionally? Um, you know, just, just an acknowledgement of it's, it's not necessarily viable if I want to live at a certain standard of, of income, unless I blow up and get super famous. Wow. You know? <laughs> well, <laughs> and also would I even want that? And, and the short answer yeah. is no. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I didn't, I decided not to try to, to get a degree, a four year bachelor's, a BFA in performance was because, you know, I already knew the risks and what I was going into, but to then put myself into that much debt uh, for a career that, again, like ninety something percent of people barely make are, are in pop, basically poverty income. I, there's no mm-hmm. way I'd be able to pay off. You know, a hundred, you know, I know people who are a hundred thousand dollars or so in debt to acting schools or to master's programs, and that you know, of course I would have loved to immerse myself in that for four years. I still think about like trying to go to graduate school for it because it's just the most, uh, just wonderful, amazing thing to really just get down and dirty and discover things and create things and (laughs) be immersed with it all the time. But it's, it's just not tenable for most people unless you get an amazing scholarship. Um, so I chose, I did go to an acting studio here, a two year conservatory, but it was much more affordable and it also just started. It was its first year. So it was a little less expensive and they needed to get people. So you could, only take certain classes. You didn't have to do like the full program. Um, so it was, it was much more flexible. Well, then the other question is having a four year degree in performance, does that actually benefit the people who have them? Like, does it give them an advantage or does it just put them in more debt and maybe give them a few more contacts? But it sounds like from your two year program, you got so many contacts that you still keep in regular touch with. And if somebody goes to a four-year school that's not anywhere where they end up performing, like, I, I don't know. Do you think it it actually helps? Well, what I think is that um, it does help in terms of what, what I think people forget is that these are skills. So if you want to become a better actor, a better singer, a better – like, you – This is, you know, you can just practice on your own or hire some people, but you are much more likely to get better results if you are in classes, if you are in programs that really help instill this information in you, just like anything else, just, you know, just like any musical instrument, just like math, like you just have to keep practicing and keep being instructed and learn new ways. And um, so I think it helps in that aspect. I don't think it's necessary at all. I think if you love it and have talent, you should just go for it anyways. Um, I think sometimes there are certain master's programs that are elite and that will get you connections that will make a huge difference. But that is like 20 people a year, maybe who get that, you know, this is Yale, Juilliard, you know, NYU, most, I mean, Yale, if you go to Broadway, like at least half the cast has graduated from Yale, like master's program. Wow. So you kind of need money to make money. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, even 
even like the the improv workshops that I I took to get to a place where um, I became a performer. Yeah, I sold my I sold my DVD collection to be able to afford the, <laughs> the classes, right? And so, and that's the thing where I, you know, I kind of lucked out from the perspective of once <laughs> once I'd sold the DVDs and gone through the workshops, it turned out that uh, you know, I did have what was being looked for in a way that I, I got hired by a theater here and, and would then make the money back over time. You know, all, all those DVDs live in the cloud now, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but, you know, that, yeah, definitely spending money to make money. And there's, there's plenty of examples, you know, as a workshop teacher at this point of, of folks that just, you know, some people just need to be pointed in a certain direction and then they get it. And then there are some folks that, you know, they, they try and they, they know what needs to be done and it just doesn't necessarily click in the same way. And, and it's a, it's a really tough thing to feel like, like, like I want to empower that person to get the performance that they want to get. Um, but also at a certain point, I feel bad for taking the money of, of folks to get them to that point, especially if it's something where, you know, it, it doesn't seem like that's going to end up landing. Mm. Um, I guess the the relief of guilt in that is like, I don't make a lot of money from it anyway. So, <laughs> you know, like it's not like, not like I'm really sucking people dry uh, in their bank accounts, but yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing to, to, to pay into the craft with your fingers crossed that you're going to be positioned to, to be able to get something back out of it more than, you know, that, energy and that self-identity kind of stuff that we've been talking about as well. Right. And it seems like there's no guarantees going into it. So basically, yeah, you have your fingers crossed and you know that it'll be enjoyable, but you don't know if it'll necessarily be like a profitable investment. For sure. And for a lot of people, that enjoyment is enough. And honestly, you know, I, I feel like I'm someone who, if I, if I, even wasn't making money from doing this, I think I'd still be involved. I think I'd still be doing it, probably not to the same extent uh, under normal circumstances, but just because of the joy that it brings. So there, there is that piece of it. I don't want to undersell the self-accomplishment and the, the joy that comes from that kind of collaboration. But yeah, there, there's just not a guarantee that there's going to be any sort of back end to it. I think we sort of sidelined the the question of what ideal conditions would look like. But even in this discussion, we've hit on a couple of things that stick out to me of like talking about having healthcare benefits as a right instead of something that's tied to your job. Um, Rebecca, you'd mentioned the high price of these schools and like working to reduce tuition costs and um, cancel student debt might go a long way towards helping people reach their dreams of breaking into a very tough industry like acting. It might give opportunities to people who otherwise could not afford them today. And I think, you know, we've seen there are small things that can be done, even short of, uh, you know, a revolution of our thoughts that that uh, John described that, you know, can produce better conditions in the here and now. Yeah, I think the, I mean, the healthcare one, that absolutely, and canceling student debt, 
I think would be two huge steps and in my opinion, completely necessary steps in order for us to be able to continue on for much longer. Um, yeah. In any, in any way, in any way, exactly. Um, so many people who are just praying that they don't get sick and, you know, who don't have health insurance or who are, who are breaking the bank to pay for their health insurance and then get something and then, and then still can't afford to take care of themselves. And I know so many actors, you know, being in both the service industry and the performing arts industry, like that's, the majority of people I know don't have health insurance or have the bare minimum health insurance uh, because, well, A, the union health insurance that does exist is still very hard to get. You have to you have to work a certain amount or make a, a certain amount of weeks on Broadway or professionally, or you have to make a certain amount of money um, every year. So the majority of people aren't actually covered by that, you know, so it Again, I think it's probably 90% 90 of uh, actors aren't actually insured by the union. So it's that would be such a because it's so connected to our survival and it's just like at the base, you know, it's this fear, this underlying fear that you're not going to be able to survive. If that was taken away, I think people would have such a so much more energy and courage to to take on more challenges to really pursue the things they want to pursue um i that's what i believe that's what i hope at least i also think that kind of anxiety squashes creativity oh yeah absolutely absolutely and creativity is a huge part of the performing arts and it's also i think an essential part of life it's it's something that makes life worth living in my opinion absolutely yeah um rachel this is something you discussed uh, in our emails before this about the um sort of the importance of arts in our society and the way that sadly they go undervalued at, at, by society we sort of treat the starving artists as a you know, it's a stereotype that we have in our pop right. culture. You know, it's it's just expected that these people won't make money doing what they do for the most part. And, and they just do it because they love it out of the kindness of their hearts. Aren't we blessed to have them? Right. And, and at the same time, the people who seek out degrees in the arts are often derided as impractical or, you know. Right. And their parents, you know, or caretakers try and talk them into something more stable or more dependable or you know are worried for them constantly which i'm sure like do both of your parents becca and john like ever did they ever give you those talks or try and talk you out of it i'm trying to remember i mean i my parents have always been supportive i'm very lucky but especially my my dad i think has been more concerned about the practical nature and making sure I have a backup. Um, so definitely thinking about that um, and talking to me about that is has been has been there. But I also know that he's he really just wants the what's best for me. And I think seeing how much healthier, like I am, so much healthier and happier because I am pursuing this. And yeah. that has transcended, I think, his concern, at least a little bit about the financial aspect. But so I, I, I 
am much luckier than a lot of my my counterparts. I know that because I had more support than not. And I'm a, a weird situation of I had uh, little to no desire to perform uh, for, for most of my formative time. I was a, uh, a very I, I was a shy kid um, and a little bit on the well, definitely on the introverted side. It was an only child, so. Um, well, I still am an only child, <laughs> um, but, uh, but so, you know, I took my first improv workshop. I was like, I think 27. So I had already established where I, I was intending to spend my time in terms of a, a professional, um, trajectory. But so, so that was never really a discussion for me, but, um, I'm similarly afflicted with a very supportive mother who, uh, has, always had my back front and center at all my, all my shows, whether that's a good idea for her and I. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so, I mean, she uh, knows you, like, even before you started doing comedy professionally, you have been a comedian as long as I've known you. <laughs> to her detriment, for sure. Um, <laughs> for, to her total exhaustion. Yeah, that is definitely, <laughs> definitely something I, I picked up from, my dad was a very, very funny man. And I, uh, I got to watch how he used comedy to bring people together and how, how he could elevate folks with it. Um, and so I think there are pieces of that that I picked up on as like, oh, this is going to be a life hack for me, like subconsciously of like, I want to be able to, <laughs> for for lack of a better phrase, manipulate people into um, having a good time. Connect with uh, people. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so yeah, that was part of my identity um, once I, once I, <laughs> finally became verbal in high school <laughs> but uh but yeah in terms of a, a thought of you know profiting off that that was never that was never something that came into play until i had a dvd player but no dvds <laughs> yeah and until all the people around you encouraged you to pursue it because you were so good at it naturally it just seemed like an extension of self it's so Sure, that's very kind. Sure, thank you. I mean, the, the truth of it is, well, the, stop it. I'm going to get all embarrassed, <laughs> you guys. Gosh. Um, yeah, no, I mean, the, the the truth is that it's opened a lot of really great doors for me, and it's allowed um, on a professional level. It's, I think, um, beneficial. It not My, my performing arts uh, is beneficial in my day job as well in terms mm-hmm. of my capacity to communicate and relate to people. Um, but it's also led to some great personal opportunities, like getting to co-MC a wedding or two, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I hate to cut this short, but we are running up against the clock. Um, before we go, I, I want to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We could just... I know. Yeah. Um, I mean, sequels are all the rage. I'm sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> no, no worries. Um, we could reboot I- it, too. I do want to take a moment to uh, thank John and Becca for coming on the show and thank you, Rachel, for um, putting this together. Um, You were instrumental in that. Um, For this week, I'm Ryan, and this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. 
Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.